I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark's gospel this morning, Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15. Mark is uh, one of four books of the Bible, books of the gospels, and this is the shortest um, one of the four, 16 chapters long, and we're at chapter 15, so we're closing out the story and the encounter of Jesus' life and times here on earth. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, just real quickly, you see that it all begins with a clear motivation. It says, in or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the beginning of this gospel, this evangel, this book that's written by John Mark The beginning of it or the motivation of it, the driving story of Jesus Christ being here on earth is to communicate that he is the son of God. Jesus is God, very God. That's what it's all about. That's the summary of Mark's motivation for writing this. And then if you come to Mark chapter 15 and you come to this moment where Jesus is dying on the cross, he's breathing his final breath, you have a centurion who said at the end of verse 39, truly this man was the son of God. You have some confessions of Christ being the son of God throughout the gospel narratives, if you read them. You'll remember that at Jesus' baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God the father is giving his divine stamp of public approval on his son, the eternal son, who's in the beginning, the word of God made flesh to dwell amongst us. This is God's son. And then you have Jesus in ministry as he was initiating his ministry, preaching the word of God in the temple. The demons would come and the demons would say, what have you to do with us, O son of God? The demoniac that came out from the Gadarenes at that desolate place at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee going, what what we have to do with you? What are you going to do to me, O son of God? These declarations were real because Jesus is truly the Son of God. And you remember Peter's confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a a clear theme throughout the Gospels, and it's bookended in the Gospel of Mark as the beginning of what he's writing and all of Jesus' ministry from beginning to end is encapsulated in this confession that he is the Son of God. And then you have, at the end of the story, Jesus dying on the cross, and as he's breathing his last, Mark lets a centurion summarize the whole book, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. This is a faith confession. This is not just a passing statement from a centurion soldier. This is the most unlikely person to believe who is believing. This is a centurion who not um, too, too many hours before, and you see this in Matthew 27, 
He's one of the soldiers of the governor who took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and gathered the whole battalion before him. They, these are the centurions. These are these soldiers. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. That's what these soldiers were up to. This centurion, a Gentile soldier who would have been in charge of a hundred men, he would have been a part of a battalion of 600 men. He was one who mocked Jesus and then was assigned to make sure Jesus stayed pinned on a cross. This man, a Gentile, was looking face-to-face with Jesus and his dying moments, and he is converted. Now, I just want you to picture in your mind, who is the most unlikely person in your life that you would be amazed to see become converted? Amazed that they would say, truly, this is the Son of God. I never believed, but now I believe. I was antagonistic. I was against Jesus. And now I am 1,000% for Jesus Christ. Who is that unlikely person? And then let's personalize it. Who are the most unlikely witnesses of Jesus? Because we're going to learn about one who's the most unlikely converted disciple. And then we're going to learn of three ladies who are the most unlikely witnesses of Jesus at the resurrection. This is the grace of the gospel in our lives. And I want to ask the question, first of all, regarding the centurion back to Mark 15. What is it that brought him to faith in Christ? How is it that all of the earthquaking violence on the outside? I mean, remember the scene. There's earthquakes. There's violence. There's darkness over the earth. In this particular region at 12 noon, at the sixth hour, according to the Roman calendar, that's 12 noon, for three hours there was abject darkness. There's earthquakes going on. There's people probably running by and saying, hey, the temple is breaking apart. The the veil of the temple is ripping top to bottom. There are people who are coming out of the graves. Graves are being exhumed and people are beginning to walk around and testify of the Lord Jesus. What is going on? All of this is happening, and while that's happening on the outside, on the inside, something is earthquaking in the heart of this centurion. This man, this man's man in full armor, the the person who is sergeant at arms there to keep Jesus pinned to the cross. And as he looks into Jesus' face, something changes on the inside. Something changes in his heart. There's chaos on the outside, and there's something solid and bold happening on the inside of this centurion's heart. What is it that sparked his conversion, this confession? Again, verse 39, look at his confession. Truly, aletheia, that means I believe this. This is truth to me. This man was the son of God. Jesus is exhaling his final breath, and as he exhales the breath of death, this man exhales words of life. Do you see that? It's poetic. It's amazing. I looked up, I Google searched last night or something, some of the artistry of the 
picture of Jesus on the cross and the centurion. And most of those scenes have the centurion down low, maybe 10 feet or more beneath Jesus, perhaps mounted on a horse. But really, the language Mark uses, the descriptor here is one where they are face to face. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him. This means that they were juxtaposed to one another. They were on opposite sides of each other. You could maybe picture it more like Jesus pinned to the T-bar seven feet off the ground and this man looking into his face in rapt attention, face to face, as he's contemplating whether or not this is truly the Son of God. What is it that brought this man to saving faith? What is it that moved his heart? Well, the details of the narrative perhaps will unlock the door for how this centurion, this unlikely disciple, came to believe. First of all, I want to take you through it. What did the centurion see? The first thing he saw was darkness. The first thing Mark wants us to know that this centurion saw was darkness. And you see that in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll stop there. First, it's darkness. What's ironic is, as this man's heart is opening up to the light of Jesus, there's darkness all around him on the outside. They're really standing face to face in the dark. Face to face in the dark. Perhaps that's not how you think of the cross of Jesus Christ, that moment of the crucifixion. It's darkness. It's darkness. It's reminiscent of the darkness of this man's soul. Perhaps you could say until you see the darkness of your soul, that you're trapped at enmity with God, against God. Until you know how dark your soul is, you won't really want the light of Jesus Christ. You have to see what's going on wrong inside before you want Jesus to make it right. There, was a, there are solar eclipses that have been chronicled Um, that are six minutes long. Science is very precise about when these happen. Apparently, on June the 13th, 2132, there'll be the longest eclipse since July 11th, 1991. Most of us in the room say, who cares? But some of you care. But anyway, six minutes and 55 seconds. That's nothing on a three-hour darkness. This is supernatural darkness. Apparently, for you science buffs, in uh, 2186, on July the 16th, there'll be the longest solar eclipse, and that'll be of all time, seven minutes and 29 seconds. This is precision calendaring between 4000 BC, 6000 AD. I don't really care. I'm just saying that this was a supernatural darkness. This was a darkness that would be unexplainable darkness, judgment darkness. In the ninth plague of Egypt, All of Egypt for three days went dark. Isaiah 13.10, Joel 2.10, Amos 5.18, Amos 8.9, all speak of a coming judgment of the day of the Lord where stars are pictured as falling from heaven. Darkness is rising. The moon will not shed light. Joel 2.10, the heavens tremble. The earth quakes. The sun and moon are darkened. Amos 5.18, it's the day of the Lord. It's darkness and not light. Amos 8.9, it's I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Revelation 16.10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
Matthew twenty two thirteen speaks of hell, which is pictured as being bound hand and foot, cast into outer darkness. Look, the Son of God was dying on the cross. Of course, there was darkness because this is the picture, the abject picture of darkness. Darkness is disconcerting. If suddenly it went dark in the room, we would feel a little bit uneasy. We would feel a little bit stressed. You remember the um, adventures of Ernest Shackleton where he took the crew to try to explore Antarctica by foot and they got... They got stuck in the ice at Elephant Island, and he went on a rescue mission, leaving the crew there. What was most disconcerting to the crew was not the numbness of temperature and the, and the loss of limbs. They all survived, but it was the polar night that really unsettled them. On May the 19th, 1780, the eastern seaboard had a haze spread across the sky on such a scale that it completely went dark. It was a premature nightfall. There were two houses of legislature that were meeting in Hartford, Connecticut. One of them immediately disbanded. The other one was motioned to disband. And this Christian stood up and he said, Mr. Speaker, if this is the day of judgment or if it is not, I want to keep working. Why? Because I desire to be found doing my work. He was nervous. Why? Because darkness is disconcerting. It's disconcerting to look inside and see what's there and what's not there, is it not? It's hard to take a hard look under the hood and look into your heart and say, Lord Jesus, where am I falling short? Well, how is it that I don't measure up to your holiness because I am such a wretched sinner? That's what this centurion needed to do. He needed to start with the darkness of his own heart. Point two, desolation. He saw darkness. He secondly saw desolation. This is in Jesus' cry with a loud voice. Jesus summoned inner strength. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Said in Aramaic, according to Mark's gospel. Uh, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22.1. He's quoting David's heart cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up to this point, we know Jesus has called God his father, his Abba. His daddy, he had cried in Gethsemane, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy, if this cup can pass for me, let it pass. But at this point, in this moment, he's bearing the sins of all of us. He made him who knew no sin, sinless Christ, to be sin on your behalf that we might become the sons of God, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're made right by the curse that was placed upon Christ. But because of this curse, it was a great separation. And this was the darkness of night in the soul of Jesus Christ. He's, he's feeling abandoned by his father. His father turns his back on him and utter desolation comes over Christ. And as one person put it, Christ was clinging to trust while feeling completely deserted. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's personal and impersonal at the same time. The Lord knew that all of this was coming. He knew that he was going to be separated from the Father, but it was still desperate, but not without joy. Jesus knew that he would endure the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12, 2 says that he, was, he did this for the joy that was set before him. It was difficult, but thirdly, Not only was there darkness that the centurion saw, he saw desolation. He saw, thirdly, derision. Derision. Verses 35 and 36, derision. That means mocking. He saw mocking. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, 
He is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. Hey, we want to see more of a magic show. That's what's going on. Some of the bystanders walking by, they weren't doubting the miracles of Jesus. They were just accounting them as magic tricks, as supernaturalism. There's a lot of people that believe in supernatural events. They believe Jesus did supernatural things, but they've not yet bowed the knee in submission to the Son of God. They've not yet taken Jesus Christ as Lord, the unlikely conversion of a centurion. The centurion is gazing into the face of Jesus, watching the darkness, seeing the desolation, and experiencing the derision around him where people are mocking him and saying, hey, let's let Elijah take you down. Are you calling out to Elijah? When he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, nobody was confused. Jesus was not confused with what he was saying. The people walking by were not confused with what he had said. They were just saying, hey, we want to see the powers of Elijah come down now. Just like he made the rain stop, maybe he'll take you off the cross. They didn't understand that John the Baptist had perfectly predicted that this is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. So Jesus is mocked and people are missing the point. But the centurion is catching on. Look at verse 37. Not only is there darkness, desolation, derision. Verse 37, there is deliverance. And Jesus uttered a loud cry And breathed his last. What cry did he make? Well, Matthew tells us, Jesus said at this point, it is finished. It is finished. He had been given the sour wine because he was was thirsty. He was clear-headed. He knew all of what was going on. He cries up to heaven and says, Tetelestai, it is finished. What does that mean? It means that the redemption of all who would believe was accomplished and done and finalized. It's a lot of people that believe Jesus died for the potential for your salvation. Jesus did not accomplish potentiality at the cross. Jesus accomplished your redemption, your secure salvation. You are, as believers, bought with a price, redeemed from slavery, bought back from the dead, brought to life because of the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all of the sins of all who would ever believe. That's the redemption of this moment. He breathed out his last, but his final breath was a shout of deliverance and victory. Jesus was totally in control of the exact timing of his death according to the sovereign plan of God. Jesus died of natural causes. Listen, Satan did not kill Jesus on the cross. I want to make that abundantly clear. Jesus gave himself in death. He died of asphyxiation. He died of blood loss. He let go at that point, but only at the point where he had accomplished redemption for all who would believe. It's the perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Why is all this important? It's important as um, the gospel writer John says in terms of Jesus giving his life. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. The father gave Jesus the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. The reason it's important that Jesus was in charge of his death 
is that he laid his life down willingly as a love offering and sacrifice for you and for me. Listen, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He made friends with you when you believed. He laid his life down for you, knowing that you would believe. He contracted your salvation through his death. And it's a love offering. 1 John 3, 16. For by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This centurion, he saw darkness all around, earthquaking darkness. Everything's falling apart. He saw desolation. He saw derision, the mockery. Then he saw deliverance through Jesus saying, it is finished. I mean, the centurion must be catching on at this point. It's amazing how his heart is opening up. And then finally, there's dominance. He saw that Jesus is truly God, very God. Look at verses 38 and 39. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. What kind of finished the centurion off? What, what brought him all the way to saving faith? He's hearing about the curtain being torn from top to bottom. This is making sense of the gospel to the centurion. Oh, this really isn't some kind of religion. This really is God, very God. An earthquake would have uh, taken something like a curtain veil if it would have been ripped in any way, but it would have been ripped side to side or kind of erratically. Uh, This temple curtain wouldn't be like a thin curtain like you would see behind me. This would be maybe a, a foot and a half, two, three feet thick woven curtain that really would be untearable by any kind of human um, forces. And it was torn from the top to the bottom, saying that all of the sham religion where people were marketing their Old Testament religion. Remember Jesus up upended tables and kicked people out of the temple for marketing the lambs at Passover. All of that sham was answered in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. All of that's garbage. The other answer is he's answering the ceremonial law. Jesus said that, None, not one jot or tittle of the law would be done away with, but it would all be fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of the Paschal lambs. All the sacrifices come to one sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that I give on the cross. The, the, the curtain is rent or ripped top to bottom. It's a supernatural event. It's a dominating event that this centurion came to be aware of. The access into the Holy of Holies. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross and gave us this access where we can just freely like, be ministered to by the Lamb of God, have free access into the Holy of Holies, there's no greater gift than that. Think about that. All the way down to when you're a kid and you first pray a prayer, when you're in desperate need. I remember my dad, when I was on a trip in, um, down in North Carolina, we were going to a funeral event and all rushing out of the back of a hatchback before you wore seatbelts and stuff. We're all in the, back, in the back seats with them all laid out. And I jumped out and had my hand still on the side of the car. He slammed the, the hatchback down on my hand. It was just great, on my finger. 
and he's looking for his keys, you know. And anyway, he opened the door. I just remember diving out with blood kind of coming out of my finger. I know this is good um, Sunday dinner fodder for when you eat uh, Easter dinner. But I'm looking at that thing, and I, I just immediately found myself praying to the Lord, Lord, please help me, please help me. And those kinds of prayers uh, are the spontaneity of our own hearts where we have access into the throne room of God where he cares about you down to your very details of life, everything that's going on, everything that's happening. The writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. All of this comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain. Hebrews 10, 20 says, it's incredible. This leads us back to where we began, the centurion. He saw the contrast between the darkness of his own heart to the light of Jesus. He saw this sacrifice. He saw Jesus' dominance. He saw the Lord was solid while all of the world is breaking apart on the outside. All of that is what opened this unlikely disciple's heart to believe. A Jew leading a Gentile to Christ. And catch this. How ironic is it that this Man's man centurion that's standing at guard, keeping Jesus pinned to the cross. That's his job is to keep him there, to keep him being butchered. He's basically coming to realize that he's not keeping him there um, to sort of protect the political realm of Rome. He's watching Jesus willingly stay there so that he can suffer and die, melt his heart, and this man-man can be reduced to a child saying, I need you, you are truly the son of God. It's the man who's catching on, realizing that Jesus didn't come in, in the form of conquest. He came as the one who was the perfect sacrifice. He wasn't an overthrow. He was coming underneath. He was coming underneath as the suffering servant. Grace came through weakness. It's a great contrasting picture between a centurion guard and a suffering lamb who's coming through weakness to save that one. The day had dawned in his heart. Well, he's the unlikely converted disciple. But now I want to ask you the question, who do you think of as the most unlikely on fire Christian? Who is the most unlikely on fire Christian, the most unlikely person to really share and show Jesus Christ to the world. There are three that are mentioned here immediately in our context, and I love that they're mentioned right away. Verse 40, right after this conversion of this centurion, verse 40, there were also women. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joses and Salome. Now, who are these three women? Mary Magdalene. She had, I think, seven demons that were cast out of her by Jesus. Uh, Jesus, when he rises from death, he, he meets Mary Magdalene in the garden area, outside the tomb, reveals himself to her. She's a convert. Then you have Mary, the mother of James. This is James the Lesser, James the Younger, one of the disciples, one of the twelve This is a lesser known James, um, not um, James and John, um, the two sons of thunder, the sons of Bonerges. You have um, three women here, one who's Mary Magdalene, two, Mary the mother of James, 
So a mom of a disciple. And then three, you have Salome. Who's she the mom of? She's the mom of the sons of thunder, James and John. She's the one who was raised up in pride, who said, Oh, Lord, uh, if James and John, my two sons, could sit on either side of you in glory, that would be you know, a great thing. And Jesus is calling their bluff and saying, you know, Who is willing to drink from the same cup that I'm going to drink? And indeed you will. It's amazing. Salome is humbled at this point. She wants to, all three of these ladies want to basically take up where, um, where you're going to see the two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, leave off. They want to be part of the, um, the anointing and burial of Jesus Christ. Let me read on. It says, when he was in Galilee... When Jesus was in Galilee, verse 41, they followed him and ministered to him. And, and there was also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is just Mark recounting that women were onlooking. They're, they're heroes. They're, they're wanting to, to worship Jesus even though he died because they're remembering that they used to follow him in Galilee. They used to minister alongside of him. And they loved him as many other women. I have to say that the mention of women here and womanhood is, is a highlight to me. Because there's so much weird talk about womanhood in our world. Women are abused. They're oppressed. You know, they're beaten down. And then on the other hand, in the political agendas, women are raised up and, and exalted in strange ways. There's a Supreme Court justice that's put on the spot. Can you define a woman? Well, no, uh, I can't. Can we just look at the Bible for a minute and say there is a, there is a male centurion here. He's a guard. I'm not saying women couldn't be guards nowadays. I'm not going there. I'm just saying Women are esteemed here as courageous. The apostles were supposed to be there. They left. Who's here? These are hearts on their sleeve. Women who are there to worship Christ. And they're risking their safety by doing so. You just need to see this. You have a couple other unlikely disciples here. You have Joseph of Arimathea, who's wealthy. It's hard to get into the kingdom of God as a camel going through the eye of the needle. Joseph of Arimathea, don't know a whole lot about him, except he had a tomb that he offered to Jesus for him to be buried in. But he also, as verse 42 says, he puts himself out there. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, So Jesus dies on Friday, Saturday is the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. So this is a respected, this is a political seat holder. He takes courage. He's going, he's going himself public here, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I want to be associated with this. I want to, um, I want to, um, ceremonially esteem Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion. This is the guard, I think, that was face to face with Jesus, who's just been converted. He asked him whether he uh, was already dead and he learned from the centurion that he was already dead and he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb at, that had been cut out of the rock. And he, this is Joseph, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. I think some people, they talk about a, 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 you know, a stone that is cut like a, almost like a millstone, and it's rolled literally and dropped in to the ground. It would be hard to remove um, that stone away from the tomb. This is what Joseph uh, did. 
And he began the anointing process with, of, of Jesus. Nicodemus, it says in John 19, 39, was also part of this. Nicodemus, who was the teacher of Israel, John 3, he was basically the religious leader of religious leaders. The, the Pope of Judaism was meeting with Jesus, and Jesus had won him to Christ. He'd become born again. He was participating by bringing 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus And to be part of this, the women knew about this. The women probably also had heard that a guard now was standing in front of the tomb on the other side of the Sabbath. So you have, this is the front end of the Sabbath with Joseph and with Nicodemus. Now the back end of the Sabbath on the other side, where we're going into the next day, the women say, okay, the Sabbath is over. I can work. And I realize there's a guard that's been posted there. Pilate's put him there. There's a conspiracy that Jesus would be stolen and that they would attribute that to Jesus rising. So a guard is posted, guards are there and they've sealed the tomb. I don't know what they used to glue that thing shut, but there was no way to remove the stone. But what I love about this story is that the women were undeterred. We don't care. We're going to show up anyway. And we're going to come to do, to pay homage to the Lord Jesus, to worship him. And point one of this new second sermon that I'm about to preach is this. They were eager to honor their Lord, verses one and two. They were eager to honor their Lord. This is the unlikely witness. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, the Mary of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. It's early. Perhaps it's a little bit dark outside. There might be some danger there. We don't know. But they're there to anoint him, verse 1 says. Um, They wanted to finish the job that Joseph and Nicodemus had begun on Friday. They were motivated. The the woman in Bethany that interrupted the party earlier that week at Simon the Pharisee's house, perhaps one of the Marys, she had broken the oil of spikenard flask over um, anointing Jesus' head. And Judas Iscariot said, why are you wasting all the money that could have been made by reselling this? Jesus... um, had said he needed to be anointed for burial. So these women are picking up this task and they're doing this with this great intention. Point two, they're uncertain how they would complete the task. Look at verses three and four. And they, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was large, it was very large. God had taken care of this. They're wondering how it was going to be done. They were coming anyway. They're wondering how it's going to be done. We're coming anyway. We're going to do it. And the Lord removed the stone. Not so Jesus could go out, but so these women could go in. They were there to anoint a king. They were there to anoint Jesus. They were there to anoint the Messiah. And guess what? The Messiah was not there to be anointed. I guess he'd been anointed enough and he had risen. They were well-intentioned, but they kind of missed the point altogether. They had been told that three days later, he would rise again, Mark 8, 31. But there they are. J.C. Ryle, he said something good about this moment. He says, what a striking emblem we have in a simple narrative um, that connects with many Christians. How often believers are oppressed and cast down by the anticipation of evils and time, times where they are in times of need to find that what they feared the most was removed, just like the stone was rolled away. Verses 5 and 6 
speak of how they were alarmed by a spiritual supernatural presence. That's the young man. It says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Don't underestimate how alarmed these women were. They were paralyzed. I mean, everything was topsy-turvy. They were there to anoint their king, to pay homage to his death. Um, they find that the stone is rolled away for them, and they're seeing a young man inside the tomb. This young man was an angel. It was an angel in the appearance of a young man. We know that angels at points um, will come in the appearance of men. They never show themselves in terms of being women. They never show themselves certainly of being little baby cherubs. They're men. And it's just the way the Bible describes the way that these angels are portrayed. We know that angels in Revelation um, you know, 4 and 5 and Ezekiel and Isaiah 6 are, are supernatural beings, very powerful beings. Um, demonstrative beings, but in this case, they are. Um, there were two here, but though Mark only points to one of them, um, this is in the appearance of a young man. And uh, but don't astra- underestimate how brilliant and bright this man's clothes was. It says a white robe. Um, if you cross-reference Luke twenty-four four, it's dazzling brilliance. Probably brightness like the transfiguration. The glory of God is on display. Just like at Christ's birth. This is the announcement of Christ's resurrection. It's an amazing moment of blinding brilliance. And these women are alarmed. They are shaken to the core. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The angel is um, taking the, the focus and attention off of his dazzling glory and putting it where it belongs on Jesus Christ. Not on Christ being actually there, but on his absence. And this angel's taking them over to the stone where he would have laid saying, look, this is exactly where he laid. This is where he should be if he's dead, but he's not dead. And his grave cloths were there Um, in a fashion that shows the miracle of resurrection. In John's gospel, it talks about how the head cloth was folded neatly at where the head would be, and then the body cloths were laid just where the body would have been. In other words, Jesus, when he raised, came right through those linen cloths that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped around him. All all that, remember, it actually says that Joseph bought that um, linen cloth and that head cloth. I guess, you know, that was just um, good for a little use. And then there it lays, and Jesus is out of those cloths. He's risen from death to life. They were paralyzed, though, by their mission and message that laid ahead of them. These are unlikely witnesses. Look at what verse 7 says. It says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Why did he say go to Galilee? Remember in Mark's gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Again, these are the women who are there. These are the ones who are the unlikely messengers to go refortify the men. The men had scattered, the men had left. And by the way, Peter is specifically mentioned here. Be sure to go and tell Peter why. Because Peter 
at the moment of truth, when he was the one guy who was close by when Jesus was about to be crucified, when he was, when he was being whipped and beaten, when he was being scourged, right at that time, he was being prompted to affirm and believe and say, I believe in the Lord. And at that point, he, as a believer, is denying the Lord. And he denies the Lord three times with cursing, putting distance between himself and Jesus. Peter for sure is thinking it's over. I had walked with Jesus. I had walked on water to Jesus. I had listened to Jesus. I had declared Jesus as the son of God. And then I denied him three times. So there's no way that Jesus will take me back into the fold. There's no way that I can be part of this ministry anymore. There's no way I can be accepted in this circle anymore. I've gone too far. And the angel says, no, no, women, tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. Be sure you don't miss Peter on that point. Peter's still in. Why? Because Jesus died for Peter's three denials. And he was buried for Jesus' three denials. And he was raised for Jesus' three denials. No matter how bad it was in your life, if you believed the death the burial and the resurrection has covered it all, has taken it away. You are free. The resurrection is hope for your own life that you can go on and be used of God in his mission and ministry. But these women are paralyzed in fear. They're afraid. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Traumas, traumas, like trauma. And astonishment, paralysis had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. At first, they're just stunned. And Mark leaves us there with these women to empathize with them. They're just stunned. Can I go on in the mission? How will I move forward? But Matthew, if I can just borrow from him, he shows us the rest of the story. Matthew 28 says, So they, the women, departed quickly from the tomb with fear. So they are afraid. But as they're running, it doesn't stay in fear. It says, with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Now, that's kind of an interesting moment. They're going to run to see disciples. And they're moving from fear and paralysis to joy and faith. And they're wanting to tell them the message that Jesus is alive. And as they come clear about Jesus, what happens? He shows up. Isn't that so interesting in the Christian life when you're working through something, just as soon as you begin to grasp what Jesus wants you to grasp, it's like he shows up and blesses you in ways that you never thought um, possible. He answers things in our lives. And Jesus met these women right where they were and they did the exact right thing. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Jesus, you're alive, you're real, you're raised from death, and my only response is to worship you. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Go 70 miles north, and there they will see me. The centurion, unlikely convert. Nobody's out of uh, the running for conversion. See the darkness, see the light. See the desolation. See the unity that you can have with Christ. See how you are isolated because of your sin. See how you're welcomed because the temple curtain has been rent in two. The door has been opened to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be welcomed in. 
unlikely convert and unlikely witnesses, the women, we're undeterred. We're going to keep going. We're going to show up. We're going to do the job. Even if the stone is there, somehow it's going to be removed for us. We go in. We thought it was going to go one way. It went another way. We thought Jesus would be there dead for us to finish our mission of anointing him. He's gone. He's risen. Our new mission is to run and share and say, Jesus has been risen and raised from the dead. This is our mission. This is our call to be unlikely disciples, unlikely witnesses. Let's join, let's join this mission, if you have not, and be that true witness for Jesus.